0: We're, in, uh, we're doing a whole year in the uh, book of the Gospel of Mark. So if you've got a Bible uh, and you'd like to follow along with the, in the Bible, you can do. We're, gonna, we're in chapter 2. Last week, um, Steve talked to us. It was brilliant last week. And uh, uh, Steve talked to us about the calling of Levi, the, uh, the tax collector, and just how scandalous that was that Jesus was associating himself with somebody who was considered an outcast, considered a villain by a Jewish people. And um, today, he caused, well not today, but in this passage we're looking at today, he causes yet more controversy. Um, so we're going to pick it up from, we're going to split it into three parts. We're going to start at chapter 2, verse 18. And uh, we're going to read the first bit in a minute together. So uh, Neil, gave us a, a choice of, of uh, passages to preach on a few months ago. And he said, which one do you want to do? And I said, this one, because it said, it was entitled, why does Jesus not obey the rules? Why does Jesus break the rules? And I thought, this is great, I love this. And part of the reason is because uh, some of you might know, but I've always been a little bit outspoken. I I don't know whether that comes across now, but particularly when when I was younger, I was quite, I was a bit of a rebel. And uh, I remember even in primary school, it's always been in trouble. And one story that comes to mind, my mum reminded me of a few months ago, was um, we were playing rugby at, at school and the headmaster was playing. And uh, I said he cheated. It was, have anybody seen Billy Casper, the Ke- Kestrel for an A of the film? It was like that where he gets sent off. I got sent off by the headmaster for arguing about the rules of rugby league. And I just would not have it that, he, that, he, that what he was doing was right. And I was, it was standing up for the just cause of the right rules of rugby league. And uh, I continued this conversation as I got into his office. And I ended up having to get sent, my mum had to come and pick me up as well. So... Um, <laughs> That was by no means the last of the uh, controversial, outspoken episodes I had at school. I've calmed down a little bit since, but Neil's (laughs) Neil's shaking his head. I think when I first joined the leadership team, and Neil and Mary were a bit like, oh no, what have we done here? Um, So yeah, I've calmed down a bit. But I, I love that, I love the idea of Jesus being controversial and breaking rules. Um, I also love the fact that Jesus defies everyone's expectations. People expect him to be this sort of, um, you know, devout, good guy, uh, religious man. And he defies people's uh, preconceived ideas about what religious, devout religious lifestyle looks like. And I think this is partly, obviously this is partly what got him into so much trouble. um, But it's also one of the reasons why a lot of people are still intrigued about Christianity. They still, as Neil said a few weeks ago, one of the actors that was playing a monk in the, the film Silence was, 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 uh, could not help but love this character, Jesus. The more he read about Jesus, he couldn't help but love him, even though he had an, a really negative view of the church. And I think that's typical of a lot of Western culture. A lot of people have no time for the church because of the reputation it's had over the years and the things it's done in the name of Jesus. But when they read about Jesus and they hear about Jesus, they can't help but be intrigued and they can't help but be drawn to him. And that's, I hope that's what we're going to get out of today's, uh, this short period today, that we'd be more enamored, enamored with the person of Jesus. I hope I can do a bit of that for you this morning. Now, scholars tell us that there are about 600. There are 613 commandments in the Torah, in the Old Testament books of the law, 613. 248 of them were positive, so do this, and 365 of them were do nots, so don't do this. So that's a lot of rules. Now, by the time Jesus came along, I believe, I've been told, that Jewish teachers of the law added another 300 on top of the, the, the things that were already rules in the Old Testament. So they brought 300 extra laws, traditions, or, or rules that were not contained in the Old Testament books of the law. That's nearly a 1,000 rules to live by. And that's not even including the laws of the land. That's just the Jewish religious laws. So 1,000 rules. Now, if, if you think about, why did they do that? Why did, the, why did Jewish teachers bring in extra laws? Well, what they were, they were so, it wasn't necessarily just to, I, some people get a bad, give Pharisees a bad press. They sort of think, or maybe they were just there to try and control people and make life hard for people. And perhaps there were some people like that. But actually, more, I think what was more common was that they actually just wanted to honor God. They didn't want to break any of the Old Testament laws because they, they loved God and they wanted to make sure that they were following God's law. They wanted to honor him. So rather than just saying, well, here's the 613 laws, as if that wasn't enough, they thought, well, to even safeguard people from getting even close to breaking the law, let's make some even harsher laws that are even harder to, to break. So think about it. I was thinking about an analogy this morning. Think about the speed limit. It's 70 miles per hour, isn't it, on, on motorways. Now, most people know that you're not going to get done by the cops. Uh, uh, cops, that's American, isn't it? But well, they are. Police. Cops. Uh, there's other words for them. LAUGHTER uh, um, no offense, if anybody's a police officer, I've got nothing against police officers. I love the police. We pray for them. We love the police. Uh, uh, we know that you're not going to get done unless you go over 75. So most people will say, what can I get away with? So I'll go, if I can go 75, even though I know the speed limit's 70. So it's a bit like saying, well, the Pharisees were saying, well, let's make the law 65 so that we know that people will still go, will push and see how far they can go. But essentially, we want them to go 70 and no further. So let's make it 65. And then they're never going to get past 70 because they know that they would, you know, unless they're uh, exceptionally uh, scandalous and don't mind getting, you know, dicing with, with, a, with a running with the cops. So I think that's what they were doing. They were saying, so one of the, the, the laws they said was, they said, well, if, if business is out of bounds on a Sabbath, let's say money is completely out of bounds. So you can't use money on the Sabbath. Then nobody's got any, any danger of breaking that law because if we get rid of money, then nobody's going to do any business. The other one was that, for example, if women... The, the, the temptation for men to sexually harass women. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law brought in an extra one that said, we forbid any man to be alone with a woman who, to whom he's not directly related. So if you weren't with somebody, if you were with anybody who wasn't your relation, then you could be accused of, of potentially breaking the law. So it was a safe, an extra safeguard. Uh, whatever you think about that, I think that was the intention of it. So when Jesus comes and breaks the laws, he's not breaking the Old Testament law. I used to think Jesus was somebody who was just scandalous. He didn't care about Jewish tradition. That's not the case at all. We, we've every reason to believe that Jesus was a devout Jewish man who, who obeyed the Old Testament laws and followed it religiously. Um, what he didn't have time for were these extra traditions, these extra laws, these extra, tra- extra rules that were brought in. And these are the things that we're going to look at today. These are things that he's, br- he's, bro- he's breaking today in these passages. So let's read from chapter 2, verse 18 to 22. We're going to split it up. Jesus is questioned about fasting. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting but yours are not? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? They can't, so as long as, he, so as, long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and on that day they'll fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, he pours new wine into new wineskins. Now, interesting, um, there was actually only one day... To which, for which the Old Testament required people to, to fast, and that was the Day of Atonement. Um, and uh, you can be sure that Jesus and his disciples followed that. However, fasting had become a real regular discipline in, in the life of devout Jews, so they do it more often than that. And for many, it had become you know, one, two, three times a week. Um, but Jesus' disciples are not doing that. So he's not saying Jesus is not saying, oh, fasting's not important and there's no value in it. Clearly, there is value in self-discipline. And uh, in, some people use that, Fasting as a way to, to sort of focus their minds on prayer and on God. So Jesus is not saying fasting is not important. But what, what it, and, and we know this as well from in Matthew's gospel, Matthew writes and says, Jesus says to his disciples, this is how you should fast. So he's, he gives them instructions as what they should do and how they should fast. So he's, he is, the implication is Jesus expected his disciples to fast. But at this time, for whatever reason, I'm not sure the reason why, there may be some scholars who know, we don't know why Jesus' disciples are not fasting, but John certainly are, and so are the Pharisees. So this is the question: So some people, it says, came to ask Jesus, "Why are you not fasting? And why do your disciples not, not Why do your disciples not fast?" Presumably, these people were Jews, but they can't have been Pharisees or disciples of John. So. Uh, I fancy, one of the things I find it fascinating about Jesus was that he hardly ever answered questions directly, did he? So if you've, if you've read any of the Bible, often when people question him, he hardly ever gives you a straight answer, which must have been really frustrating. I'd be really annoyed with him if he was, if he was the first night question, because he just want a straight answer. Now, maybe it's because he knew that stories and parables and imagery were, were much easier for people to remember. So I remember pictures much better than I do dialogue. And I think probably most people are like that. But maybe it's also that is, Jesus seems to be able to discern when people are asking a question out of, um, you know, gener, uh, general, uh, generosity, generosity in, what's the word? Curiosity. curiosity, that's the word. I knew it was anosity at the end. Curiosity, <laughs> curiosity, genuine curiosity. That was, that was the phrase I was looking for. Or whether they were just trying to catch him out. And clearly in, the, in this passage, they do seem to be kept, want to catch him out, certainly in, in the next part of it. So... He breaks traditions and cultural norms. He doesn't fast like the others. Now his response was three analogies, which is quite strange, really. The first one seems to make, make sense, but the other two are a little bit more abstract. The first one, he starts talking about a wedding, um, and he's basically saying he compares himself to a bridegroom and, and the bridegroom's friends. Jesus is saying that now, while Jesus is with them, now is a time for celebration. Like a wedding day, you don't go and start mourning on a wedding day because a wedding day is a time for celebration. And Jesus is saying, I'm the bridegroom and I'm with you. Now is a time to enjoy yourself and to to revel in the fact that that I'm with you. Um, It'll soon be over. It's also the first time, in Mark's gospel anyway, that Jesus alludes to his own death because he says, soon I won't be with you. I'll be taken from you. But nobody seems to pick up on it. It's certainly not in the account that Mark r- writes. Nobody seems to pick up on that. Um, so rather than being stony-faced and pious, which is what a lot of the others did when they fasted, they put, they put ashes on their head and they wore sackcloth, so they wore really terrible clothes and looked you know, very bad fashion sense. Um, and they basically made it obvious that they were fasting to other people. Jesus is saying, rather than doing that, just be normal, be joyous, I'm with you. Um, now, he was really hard for people to work out, wasn't he? Um, and people didn't because he didn't seem so black and white it didn't seem it's always a lot easier when rules are very very rigid because you it's very easy to live your life that way Jesus never seemed so black and white and um, John's emphasis was easy because he was he came and preached in the wilderness and said the wrath of God is near so repent that's an easy message isn't it and when you see people preaching on the streets and saying that it's it's an easy message to understand we might not like it but we understand it God's ain't going to be angry with you so turn away, turn, turn away from your sins and follow him. John, that was kind of John's message. The Pharisees' message just seemed to be constantly make sure you're pure, make sure you follow the law. Uh, and how do we do that? Well, let's we live an aesthetic life so we we basically we we treat ourselves with real strict discipline and we find it we, we fast and we we follow religious rules to the to the to the nth degree. Um, Jesus was was much different. And uh he also refers to himself as a bridegroom, which if anybody, these guys would have known the imagery in the Old Testament, the Old Testament imagery, God is, is, uh, is referred to by some of the prophets as the bridegroom or a husband of the bride and the church or the, God's people as being the, the bride. And so Jesus by using this, this metaphor of the bridegroom is, a, is basically saying, I am, I am God. I am with you like, like, a, like a husband is with his bride. As we heard a few weeks ago, it was, would have been scandalous to people who were Jews at the time. When Jesus claimed to forgive sins, that was when the guy was the, the friends lowered their mate through the roof, and he said, "Which is easier to take your mat, or for me to say your sins are forgiven?" He was saying, "I can forgive sins," which was you know, there's no reason, there's no no wonder why people hated him because that he were equating, he was equating himself with God, and I think he's doing it again. He was saying, he's so slowly revealing his identity in Mark's gospel. The more stories you read, the more you see the identity of Jesus. Jesus is is telling you that he is much more than a rabbi. He's much more than a prophet. He is God in the flesh. He is the husband of the bride, the church. Now, that's the first analogy. The other two, I think, are saying the same things. So you've got an an old garment that's wearing away that needs a new patch on it and old wineskins and new wineskins. Essentially, they're making the same point, I think. Um, They do seem a bit a bit abstract. But what he's saying is, a patching up of the old religion is not going to be enough anymore. He's coming to bring something completely new. He's bringing a new kingdom. He's bringing a, a new uh, motive, a new attitude to religious worship and to, to life itself. Um, essentially, I think that's what he, he's saying. Don't just try and patch up the old religion with bits of new interpretations of the laws and you know, just get yourself a little bit right and make sure you follow the rules a bit better. And Jesus is saying... I've come to bring you a completely new way of seeing things. And that's, that's what the analogies are about, I think. Thank, is that true, Neil? Yep, Neil's saying yes. <laughs> that's good. If Neil's nodding, that's good. We were saying last night, if Neil starts doing this and wiping his eyes, <laughs> I know it's bad. Ride that pony. Ride that pony, thank you very much. Last night, I was, also, I was also saying to Bev and Frank and Morag last night that In some places in in the preaching world, if you're doing well, they shout, ride that pony in the congregation. So you could do that if you want. And if it's not, if you're not doing well, they say, help him, Jesus. (laughs) But with Neil, what Neil does is this. So I know, I know, I've picked up the signs. All right, so this was absolutely groundbreaking, wasn't it? Absolutely mind-blowing for people. They couldn't believe he was coming out of the things that he was coming out with. And there's no wonder that it caused such a stir. Um, he, he shook things up completely. So that's the first thing. He, he breaks this sort of tradition of, of regular fasting for somebody who's a rabbi with his disciples. Then the second thing he does is he breaks um, two Sabbath laws. The first one is picking grain on the Sabbath. So we're going to read from chapter 2 to picking it up where we left off. Chapter 2 again, verse 23 onwards this time. Entitled, Lord of the Sabbath. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the cornfields and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some ears of corn. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. So keeping the Sabbath holy was one of the most important things that, that, that Jewish folk could do. It was the first commandment of the Ten Commandments that came with a promise attached to it. If you do this, then this will happen. Um, the problem in the Scriptures was that it was no, there wasn't really that much clear guidelines as how to keep it holy. All it was was just rest and do no work. But he was like, well, what does that actually mean? So again, this is another reason why the Pharisees brought in new uh, sort of traditions and rules to try and help people to understand what that even means what does it mean to do no work does it just mean don't go into work or does it mean you can't do anything at home so some of you will have grown up maybe even in, in, in households where you weren't even allowed to play games or watch TV or do certain things because it was seen as work Okay, so it was, they were bringing in these, these extra uh, rules really to try and help people to, to not break the commandment again how does Jesus respond? with a story this time it's about King David um, and he says about, you know, King David ate, ate bread that really, religiously, only religious folks, only the priests could eat. But they were really hungry and he ate it. Why is he using this this analogy or this story from the Old Testament? I think he's doing more than just saying, well, David brought the rules, so I think I can. I mean, that's, that's the sort of rationale I get at college and my students. Like, well, such as Dave said your, your lesson wasn't on, so I didn't do it, or I didn't go to it, or... You know, well, Steve hasn't handed the assignment in, so I'm not going to hand it in on time either. You know, It's that sort of, I don't think Jesus was doing that. I don't think he was saying, well, he brought the rules, so why can't I? I think what he's saying is, he knew exactly why he was mentioning King David. He's saying that, he's making another bold claim, isn't he? He's saying, King David was the most revered king in in, in the Jewish nation's history. If he can do it, how much more the Son of God? He's basically saying, I'm greater than King David. That's what he's saying, or at least he's equal in himself to King David at this point, which obviously would have, again would have been absolutely scandalous to them. King David is this revered figure in their history. How can Jesus claim to be able to do the things he did? Um, he knew exactly what he was doing. And then he ends with this even more scandalous claim that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. Now we know that son of man can just mean person, But in this, certainly in my Bible, I don't know whether this is right, but in my Bible, the Son of Man is capitalized to to, to suggest. Jesus is saying, I am the Son of Man. It's a a phrase that he used about himself. I'm Lord of the Sabbath. I'm I'm overruling the Sabbath, ruling that you're you're bringing. So again, no wonder he caused a stir. Then he brings the final one, which is the final straw for the Pharisees um, and uh, those who were, were, were loyal to Herod was him healing on the Sabbath. So just this last bit of the scriptures we're gonna to read to get together from chapter three, from verse one to verse six. Another time, so this wasn't on the same day, would have been a pretty mad day if he'd done all this on the same day. Another time he went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for reasons to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with a shriveled hand, stand up at the front, everyone. And Jesus asked them, which is lawful to do on the Sabbath? to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill. But they remained silent. He looked round at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched out his hand and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill him. This was the final straw. This is the first bit we have in Mark's gospel, the indication that they were so scandalized by this character Jesus that they were willing to go to, to plot to kill him at this point which for us seems so ridiculous, but if you get yourself in the mindset of first century Jews, you can see how scandalous this, this guy is gonna cause an awful lot of trouble and he's, he's, he's making ridiculous claims that are blasphemous. So the final straw, um, Jesus is again displaying his authority to interpret the way he and his hearers practice Old Testament customs. And he was challenging that very notion, wasn't he, of, of how to obey and honor God. Um, think that basically what he's saying is, what is the spirit of the law? I think we can still think like that sometimes. We we need to follow a, a law, but actually if you try and think, it's easier to understand and to follow a law if you understand what's behind it. Like I I will, I will follow rules, even if I think they're rubbish, if I understand what's behind them and the person's intention behind them. The Pharisees didn't seem to, 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 to be bothered about that they just were saying you just need to follow the laws Jesus saying what is the spirit of the law of course you don't want to do work on the Sabbath because we want to we want to honour it the Sabbath was a gift for people to say you don't need to work seven days a week and you shouldn't expect everybody else to work seven days a week do you remember when you were slaves in Egypt Pharaoh made you work seven days I'm not expecting you to do that it's a gift for you it's, it's a reminder of just how good God is to you and how precious you are as his people and how much therefore you should extend that to other people So it was a gift, but if somebody needs healing on the Sabbath, or your donkey falls down a well, or something needs doing, God doesn't expect you just to say, well, sorry, but this is the Sabbath, I can't possibly help you. The spirit of the law is, it's a gift to you, of course you're going to do good things on the Sabbath. It's not meant to be restrictive, it's meant to be a gift. And so the spirit of the law, they couldn't understand, they weren't getting behind the spirit of the law. Jesus got right to the heart of it. And as we know, God doesn't care about what you do, well, he does care about what you do, but he's more concerned about your attitude and your heart, isn't he? If you, do, if you do the wrong thing, but with the right intentions, God would like that more than doing the right thing with the wrong intentions. So that's, that's always, I think that's what we see with Jesus is that he looks for your heart and he exposed the hard-heartedness of people at the time who thought they were religious and doing all the right things, but actually their hearts were so far away from God, even though they wanted to honor him. So Jesus does all these things. He picks corn on the Sabbath, He heals somebody on the Sabbath and he doesn't, he refuses to follow the strict fasting traditions of the Pharisees. Um, As I said, an interesting story. I had a conversation with a friend of mine who was a Muslim and became a Christian. And uh, he said to me only about a month ago, um, he said, I'm just so happy for, I'm so thankful to God for what he's done for me. I want to start fasting. Um, I'm not making this up, by the way, just for the sermon. He said, I want to start fasting. He said, but what would God be happy with? What do you think I should do? How often should I do it? How many times a week? How many hours? And, I, and obviously my, my answer was, it's up to you. Because God's, God is happy with you already. God is, is, is happy that you're grateful. You don't have to fast at all if you don't want to. But if you want to, that's brilliant. That's a good, that's a, that's a, a self-discipline. And it's a way that you can, you, can, um, you can maybe use that time to focus on prayer or whatever you want to do with that time. It's, it's, it's got value, but you don't have to do it. And I even shared with him the fact that I've been fasting for a number of years and then it got to Christmas and I was finding myself just getting more and more annoyed at work and on the days when I'm fasting that my patience is getting thin. I'm getting to the stage where, you know, I'm hungry as well as tired and annoyed and I find that it's been a massive challenge for me this year at college fasting on these two days I've been doing it and I thought, Do you know what, Let's just enjoy some food at Christmas, like most people do. I had a great time, loved, loved food. And when I went back in January, and you know, it was depressing, that, that Black Monday on January the 9th, um, I thought, I'm not going to fast today. I'm just going just to eat normally. And I've, I've kept that going. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to stop fasting for a bit, because I start to feel guilty that I might, I'm not doing it. And I'm starting to think, why am I doing it anyway? I'm not doing, God's not happy with me, with, more happy when I'm doing it than he is when I'm not doing it. So if my intention's not right and my heart's not right, don't do it. Just leave it for a bit. I'm not saying I'm not going to go back to it because there's definitely some value in it. But, but the spirit of what I'm doing needs to be right. Otherwise, it's, it's just an empty ritual that has no, cuts no cloth with God. So what does this, old, what does this mean? Is Jesus saying, like a lot of, some Christians will say, well, this means Jesus is, is breaking all the Old Testament laws. No, he's not doing that. And even in Matthew's gospel, he's saying, don't think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've I've not come to abolish them. I've come to fulfill them. What he is doing is he's he's breaking unnecessary man-made rules. He's challenging the religious class that would say, here's some extra stuff we're going to pile on top of you and make your your life harder because we think you should do it. And if you don't do it, we're going to make you feel guilty about it. And Jesus is completely challenging that. And I think over the centuries, I was thinking about how does this affect our lives and Think about the sort of unspoken religious, or non-religious really, norms that, that people expect of you. Things that are said, that are kind of unwritten rules. One of the things in my workplace is think, people say, use this phrase, you've got to play the game. As if work is some kind of game that you've got to play. And obviously, or, you know, just, just, we just do this and you tick a box. And it doesn't really matter if, you know, I know it's not strictly true, but, but, you know, it's figures and it's targets. And if you do this, it'll get somebody else off your back. And I just started thinking about how that's an unwritten accepted norm isn't it and that's something I think I should be challenging wherever I can and I just thought of other other things I mean at Christmas somebody we started talking at least two houses we went to we ended up talking about politics and religion and at the end one in one place one of my family members said anyway we shouldn't be talking about politics and religion at a dinner table and I just thought what a ridiculous I've always thought it's such a ridiculous rule that it's just like what's the They're some of the most important things we should be talking about exactly surely this is the time to talk about it um anyway that's just me maybe um so, and I started thinking about, you know, what are the, what are the cultural norms or rules you might break? And where, are the, where are the things that you might need to challenge? We don't go out just to break laws, just to be renegades and anarchists. But are the things that, you, you're, you know, that you, we're, you're, you're obeying because you think, oh, people will be pleased with me if I do that? What is it that you're doing? Maybe even in, in church life. Are there things that we do at church or in your own private devotions where you think, but oh, just do that, God will be happier with me. or I'll feel a bit better about my relationship with God. Because God's not interested in that, is he? He's not interested in sacrifices, he says. He looks at your heart. Um, and I was thinking about, about all the different ways that the different types of uh, Christian groups have been known and how they've tried to, to, to follow laws and stuff. And obviously Jesus, starting with Jesus, he was known, as Steve said last week, he had a, a reputation that was not not necessarily fair. He was known as a glutton, as a liberal, law-breaking Jew, as a blasphemer, um, as a, somebody who fraternized with people they shouldn't do. Uh, John's disciples were known as being, you know, having harsh discipline, living lives of solitude. He was out in the desert quite a bit, and he ate a pretty minging diet. Um, the Pharisees and disciples, as we've seen already, they, they were known as their strict observance and often judgmental. And I was thinking about other groups of, of, through history, monastic groups who took vows of poverty and chastity and solitude. That's how they were known. That's how they wanted to, to observe their their religious worship in their lives. Uh, Then I got on to, just doing a bit of research, got on to the Puritans who thought the reformers didn't go far enough. They've they've not got rid of all the nonsense in in the church enough. We need to go further. And so they often denounced the denominations for for their religious practice and their lifestyles. And they had strict rules about what was acceptable to do in entertainment and stuff. And then got on to the Amish in America. Obviously, very, very different group of people, but very simple living and resisted a lot of Western, Western sort of norms and culture. Um, and then I just thought, well, how would we want to be known? How would us as a church, if somebody looked at us as a church, and, and make, we're making sweeping generalizations about these groups of people, I am, how would they want to, how would you want to be known? And how would you as an individual want to be known? Sometimes as Christians, I think it's just the last bit, <clears throat> really, sometimes we're often um, known more for what we stand against than what we stand for. I wonder if Jesus, if he was if he was here today and he used Facebook, I don't know whether he would abstain from Facebook or whether he'd be like on it every day. But if he was on it, I wonder if he'd be. I'd like to think he wouldn't be the guy that's ranting about all the things that are wrong in the world and all the things that we should be doing about it. I'd like to think that he would be somebody who's posting those those words of truth and hope, those encouraging messages, those thankful, you know, messages of gratitude maybe pictures of things that are beautiful and stuff that is creative. And I'd like to think that Jesus is that guy, not the guy that's, that's ranting about what's wrong. And obviously in, in America, some of Christian evangelicalism has got an exceptionally bad name and for right reasons, because they do stuff like this. You know, they, they go and they hold placards saying that, you know, AIDS is a, is a result, is, a, is God's punishment on, on homosexuality and all that sort of nonsense that, that basically everybody says, oh, well, that, if that's Christianity, then I don't want any part of it. And I, do you know what? If I was not a Christian and I looked at that, I'd, I'd say exactly the same thing. The thing is, that's not Christianity. That's just a, w- a certain way that a particular group of people choose to practice it and choose to communicate it. How do we want to be known? I mean, to, I, I'd think just i like to be known by somebody saying, he, he's a bit more like Jesus. He's got Christ-likeness. That's how I'd like to be known. Much more above, above and beyond the strictness of my practices and opinions. And we're not saying that there isn't times for standing up and saying, this is unjust and this needs to be sorted. It's not in it, I'm not saying we should just go and have free morals and just do whatever we want. We're not saying that at all. But how do you want to be known? And um, I'd like to think that we'd, want, we'd be known as somebody who, who models this, the beauty and the character of Jesus rather than being some people that just hold on to really strict religious customs and rituals. Uh, so that's basically, that's basically it for today. That's my, that's my uh, <clears throat> offering this morning wonder if the, uh, the band would like to come back. <clears throat> Cheers. <clears throat> so just to pray, really. Um, and hopefully that's given you a bit of food for thought. Maybe something to think about. Maybe there's something in there for this week. And if it hasn't, then. It's only been half an hour out of your life, hasn't it? Don't, not too bad. Yeah, what's about half an hour? And Pauline didn't fall asleep. Did you shut you shoot your eyes while you are listening? All right. I didn't see Neil rub his eyes once. That's great. Lord, we thank you for just um, your word again that reminds us of who Jesus is. And when we see Jesus, we see God. Lord, we thank you that you, did, you didn't come just to break rules and just to, just to cause trouble, but you did come to challenge the status quo, and you did come to uh, bring a whole newness of life and a whole different attitude, a different uh, perspective to what it means to live a, a truly godly life, but a truly centered life as well in the midst of, of uh, ungodliness. Lord, whatever that means for us as individuals, <clears throat> we pray for your, your inspiration and, and your spirit that would shine a light into our, into our hearts or where we've become hard-hearted, where we've become religious, where we've become uh, arrogant, or even the opposite, where we've become apathetic because we think, oh, it doesn't really matter because God will be all right with me, whatever. Lord, we pray for your forgiveness and we ask, for, we ask that you challenge us again. But we know that the challenge of Jesus was a, a gentle, gracious challenge. And we, we know that we don't always get it right, but we know that your grace is sufficient. We know that you will take us, take us back under your wing again. You are the bridegroom. You are the husband of the church. And one day you will come back for your bride and we'll be together. Long for that day, we look forward to that day. Pray, Lord, for that we would be as a church would be known <clears throat> as a place of grace, a place of healing, and not a place of judgment. In Jesus' name.